From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Biden's new performance management leader says the administration finds, quote, even more damage to the federal workforce. Pam Coleman, the new associate director for performance management at the Office of Management and Budget, says rescinding executive orders about the workforce and mask mandates in government offices are just the first steps to remedy what she called the, quote, damaged, disrespected, and demoralized federal workforce. GovExec reports Coleman says the forthcoming president's management agenda will include more fixes for the workforce. The National Security Agency is pushing defense contractors to move to a zero-trust security model. New guidance from the NSA says anyone who manages, quote, national security systems, Department of Defense networks, and defense industrial-based systems should use the model. Breaking defense reports the guidance is in response to the solar winds hack. A 15% cut is coming to the Marine Corps' civilian workforce, according to a new plan from Commandant General David Berger. He writes to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in a memo Defense News obtained. His modernization and redesign plan will require the civilian cuts, reducing end strength by about 12,000 Marines and retiring legacy equipment Berger says the force doesn't need anymore. Berger's plan aims for implementation by the year 2030. The Defense Department has cut its improper payment rate to 1.7% in fiscal 2020, but that's still $11.4 billion. Better controls could shrink that number. Elizabeth Field is Director for Defense Capabilities and Management Issues, GAO. She testified about DOD budgeting issues to the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. Elizabeth, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. What was your main message to the committee in your testimony? The main message is that uh, the department and Congress face some really tough choices moving ahead. Uh, we are on uh, an unsustainable fiscal path as a nation. And as the largest single category of discretionary spending, the defense budget is going to play a really important role in those conversations. Uh, and it is not our role at GAO to make some of those difficult choices about trade-offs and uh, how, to, how to modernize, how to ensure readiness and balance those two things in terms of what uh, where investment should go, um, but we can uh, and have made recommendations to the department about where it can better manage its defense spending so that as these difficult conversations are being held, both Congress and the department know that those funds are going to be used uh, for their best use and best purpose. You have four main concepts here that you list as opportunities to achieve that. Normally, I'd tick off all four of them, but there's one in particular I want to focus on. The list is this, improving budgeting execution of funds. The second is more clearly determining future resource requirements for overseas contingency operations. The third is reducing improper payments that I mentioned a bit of success the Pentagon's having there uh, in the introduction. The fourth is the one that I want to stay with uh, in this conversation today, Elizabeth, and that's sustaining and refining department-wide business reform efforts. And you testified DOD must transform transform its overall business operations so it can more efficiently and effectively use its resources. With all due respect to you and the wonderful work, distinguished work that you've done over the years, that's not news to anybody. And it strikes me that this is something the department's been trying to do for a long time. What level of success do you think they're having? 
Well, you're right. The department has been trying for well over a decade to reform its business operations and uh, cut costs through greater efficiencies. And we have reported uh, several times over, as you know, that a lot of times these reform initiatives fall short of their intended outcomes. Uh, The department had a little bit of success last year. They identified about $37 billion in savings as a result of the zero-based review that Secretary Esper initiated. Uh, And you and I talked about this before. We could see those $37 billion in savings reflected in budget documents. That was progress. Uh, But we also found that a lot of those savings did not really reflect true reform, so fundamentally transforming the way the department does business. What is of most concern to us now is that with the elimination of the chief management officer position at DOD, it's unclear who really is going to guide the department at a very senior level uh, to make uh, those types of true reform initiatives that, that need to happen in order for the department to operate more efficiently. And the, the solution supposedly uh, through the National Defense Authorization Act is that the Secretary of Defense, now uh, Mr. Austin, will have the discretion to distribute the responsibilities that the CMO uh, carried for the last several years. Is there a lost opportunity? It's going to take some time, obviously, to parcel out those responsibilities. Is that a lost opportunity to continue this momentum? Well, GAO has found in a lot of different uh, circumstances that whenever an agency or a program undergoes a significant leadership transformation, even if it's a positive one, there can be uh, negative effects of just that the turmoil of that leadership change. Now, in this case, uh, before he left, Deputy Secretary Norquist issued a memorandum which did uh, parcel out the roles and responsibilities that had gone to the CMO. A number of them went to the comptroller's office. A number of them went to the director of cost assessment and program evaluation. And that really raises a lot of questions about how these various offices that have assumed the responsibilities that used to be within one office, the CMO's office, will coordinate together, uh, will really drive progress forward in the way that it needs to move forward. The point, if I recall correctly, and I'm not asking you to correct my memory, Elizabeth, but the point of putting all of those functions into one office was exactly that level of collaboration uh, back in the 2017-2018 time period. You put in this testimony, DOD generally concurred with the recommendations that GAO has made uh, on, on all of these issues and others and is working toward implementing them. What's your assessment of how they're doing in implementing those recommendations? Well, so across the board in the four areas that you listed at the beginning, I, you know, I think it is fair to say that the department has made progress. Uh, for example, in the area of improper payments, we identified some problems related to how the department was uh, tracking and addressing problems related to improper payments in its travel pay program. Uh, that said, there remain a number of open recommendations in all of these areas. For example, in improper payments, we have two open recommendations on what we call our priority recommendations letter, the recommendations that we think deserve the personal and urgent attention from the Secretary of Defense, in this case, to do a better job of recovering funds that have been lost due to improper payments. So uh, the typical GAO adage, progress made, but more work remains. Uh, There's a lot more I'd like to cover on this, Elizabeth, but we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the hot contracting mar- uh, M&A market. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why that hot market could last 20 years. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Two big government contracting companies will combine when Periton completes its acquisition of Perspecta. Defense News reports the CEO of Northrop Grumman, Kathy Warden, says mergers and acquisitions action could be heavy for the next 20 years. Gene Stack is managing director at Baird. Gene, welcome. It's good to see you again. Do you agree with that assessment that this will be a hot market in M&A for the next period of time? And if so, why? Why not, if not? Yeah, no, thank, and thank you for having me. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the market is really strong right now, and we think it's going to be strong through 20, 2021. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's active both at the big, you know, big end of the market as well as the mid-tier and, in the, and the smaller end as well. So um, as, you can, as you can imagine, uh, the activity has been robust, really caused from a number of factors. Um, we see uh, the anticipation of tax changes, uh, it's, uh, which is one of the big drivers of M&A at the end of last year. We see that as a continuation into this year as folks anticipate tax changes into 2022. Um, the anticipation of how the budget is going to change and increasing budget pressure uh, in the Biden administration and what impact they may have on uh, defense budgets uh, in the future. All of those, that confluence events combined with very strong capital markets, both on the equity side as well as the financing side, is really driving uh, just, uh, uh, it's really driving uh, quite a bit of m activity. And again, we'll see it throughout the year. Are there common themes among the companies that other companies are acquiring? Are they looking at balance sheets primarily? Or are they looking at their own portfolios and trying to fill gaps? Some other reason, all of the above, Gene? Yeah, all of the above. So, well, so when you say balance sheets, here, what I think about that is I think about um, bottom line synergies, right? So when you see these deals at scale, they're anticipating some real cost synergies and cost savings from combining back offices. That's what you see in times of budget pressure. You see increasing emphasis on combining to create scale and get those synergies. Those synergies can be substantial for companies. You'll hear that reference in the press releases. Uh, so you'll see that in the larger deals. Um, when you look at companies that are more, uh, you know, on uh, large companies buying smaller companies, it's really to fill capabilities gaps. Uh, it's to fill those gaps in areas, high growth areas of the market. They could be from a customer perspective or a mission perspective like space or C5ISR, or it could be from a capability perspective. And uh, in, um, in AI, machine learning, or uh, DevSecOps, or managed services. So, it, those uh, smaller size deals are really to uh, fill the the gaps from a capability uh, or from a mission perspective. How much of the market right now, Gene, is being driven by companies that want to be acquired, putting themselves out there, and how much of it is driven by companies that want to acquire and are going out and actively looking for for something to buy? That's a great question. I think it's absolutely a confluence of both, right? So, you know, the, the fact is buyers are opportunistic. So when the timing is right and you've got sellers in the market, which you do, um, and you see those sellers because uh, they see strong valuations, they see a lot of activity, they anticipate these tax increases, you'll see buyers buying opportunistic. So a lot of that is seller driven, but then you also see buyer activity. So we see a lot of preemptive activity going on in the market right now. So uh, one-off transactions, I would say a quarter to a third of the deals we're doing are preemptive situations where buyers say, I need this company, I need to fill this gap. Uh, and engaging in those preemptive situations. Is there any of this market that's attributable to cheap money? Is there a worry that the the increasing interest rates in coming years could slow this down? Sure. So 
Um, absolutely, when you think of uh, private equity activity, when you think of inexpensive capital, um, you think of uh, certainly an opportunity to drive those equity returns. So that is one of the factors that's particularly when it comes to private equity and private equity is responsible for almost half the deals that happen in the market, whether it be on a platform or adding on to their current portfolios and having that access to inexpensive capital and having a lot of capital out there is absolutely a driver of that activity. We've also seen public companies uh, willing to go deeper into their balance sheets to borrow money, um, given the availability of it and giving the comfort and moving up in terms of how much leverage they have on their balance sheet. That's been a theme you know, over many years. We see it even stretched a little bit further, given the stability of the base and the cash flow generation of businesses in the space, kind of pushing up against higher leverage multiples. So that access to capital, whether it be on the uh, on the um, the lending side, the leverage side, uh, or even the equity markets, um, you know, you can't have a conversation today with a seller without talking about a SPAC. And you know, SPACs are everywhere. Everywhere, um, they are responsible for half of the IPOs that are in the market uh, today. And uh, you know, I'm. It'll be very interesting to see our first SPAC deal in the defense and government space. Um, we have a little bit more than a minute left, Gene. Is there something, anything you see on the horizon besides increasing interest rates that might dampen the enthusiasm for M&A? Yeah. So uh, absolutely. You know, I think that the biggest single, you know, uh, driver of how companies uh, execute M&A strategy, um, which is, you know, it's their very thoughtful strategies, is really budget is driven by budgets. So the the biggest challenge uh, or the biggest um, when we saw a downturn in M&A was really budget driven. It was during sequestration where folks where buyers didn't know. Uh, where to allocate uh, where to allocate their dollars, where that strategy was, because there's so much uncertainty in and around uh, in and around where the budget spending is going. So as long as there's visibility and predictability, you know, in what that budget cycle is going to look like, even if even with tougher budget times, we'll continue to see M and A. But certainly that budget is one. The other is if there is a major change in the capital markets. Obviously, buyers want to do accretive transactions and strategic transactions. You know, if there was a, a major impact, not just to interest rates, but in the in uh, in the financing markets, if that if those really stalled, that would highly, you know, obviously heavily impact private equity's ability to, to do transactions. So I would say the financing markets would have a big impact as well, more so even than the equity markets. Gene Stack, always great to have you on the program. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, getting contractor performance ratings from the contractors themselves. Straight ahead on Government Matters, reading the tea leaves to get the right results. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. A new acquisition alert from the General Services Administration includes guidance for contracting officers for self-assessments from contractors. GSA Senior Procurement Executive Jeff Kosas says the self-assessments can go into the contractor performance assessment system. Jim Williams is partner at Shamback Williams Consulting, former acting administrator and deputy administrator of GSA. Jim, welcome. It's good to see you, my friend. What does this mean? It's, as I read this memo from Jeff, sounds like a big deal, and I have to say I'm not expert enough to understand exactly why. 
Well, it is a big deal. The current CPARS past performance reporting system is a system that is really kind of broken right now. And uh, Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Jeff Kosis, Soraya Korea, other leaders in procurement are trying to fix it. This is a great move by Jeff Kosis. And, and the reason, one of the reasons why it's broken is because it, all the scores are tending towards everybody gets an average score. So there's really no differentiation. And the contractors are pretty unhappy, as we found out, that they don't feel like they're being treated fairly. And I think Jeff's move to encourage and allow for self-assessments is going to put more balance back in the system so that contractors who do well are recognized by those contracting officers for their good work. Is there a risk that a contractor might say they thought they did well, even if objectively someone else would determine they didn't do well? Well, I think that is a risk. But again, as Jeff points out in his memo, this is a lot like employee performance appraisals, where it's really the self-assessment is input, where there is a, a big gap between what the government thinks and what the contractor thinks. He's also saying this is a good avenue for discussion. I mean, this shouldn't have ended with the, with the CPARs, but there should be discussions all along. And he's saying, let's encourage those discussions so that we don't have this giant gap in our understanding about how well things are going. Is this something that companies are doing now anyway for their own internal purposes or maybe should be doing for their own internal purposes? Or is this adding something on to the work that companies are doing and, uh, as a part of their contracts? Well, where the government contracting agency allows this, many contractors are taking advantage of this. I think there is a much greater need to pay a lot more attention to CPARs, uh, whether you're large or small. If you're a small company, people who are doing M&A are saying as part of their valuation, they're starting to look at CPARs. In fact, IAC has an acquisition excellence session coming up on just that subject. But also they're using CPARs more and more in source selection decisions. We want to see them used more and more at the task order level and used as, as a primary measure of a contractor's performance. That is coming. OFPP is looking hard at this issue, and I think much more attention is coming. It's a great system because it gives the voice of the customer, CPARs, you know, in something like TripAdvisor or Yelp. So the government just needs to reform it. Yeah, and, and I, what does that look like in your view? What does the successful realization of that vision look like in your mind, Jim? I think it's where uh, it is a motivator to improve contractor performance. It becomes a, a real significant factor in source selection decisions, whether you're at the task order level or whether you're at the uh, prime contract level. I think it's also as the Biden administration is looking to include other things to leverage the $580 billion, whether it's climate change or addressing racial inequities. CPARs, if that's gonna be included in federal contracts, this is a great way to measure achievement of those goals. So we're looking for a system that truly is accurate, is timely, provides good information, and really is a motivator for better contract performance, better use of taxpayer dollars. So you said at the beginning of this conversation, the, uh, the criticism from the vendor community is that everybody looks average. Put yourself in the seat of that 1102 and you sit down, you go through all this information and everybody looks excellent or, or exceptional or whatever the, the best superlative is. How do you look at that with a critical eye and determine um, who's really the best performer in a particular area? Well, I've always believed if truly everybody is excellent, everybody should get an excellent rating. But on a one to five rating where five is the highest, 
what we're really seeing is majority of ratings go to a three. And the reason why, if you give less than a three or more than a three, it requires more work. So in a way, these overburdened contracting officers are kind of taking the easy way out. And I don't blame them in a way, but that's unfair to the contractor. So I think we do want it to be a differentiator of performance. So if a contractor really is performing at a five level, give them a five. They really are performing at an average level, give them a three. I just wonder if we get to a point where the, 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 the CO ratings are all threes and the vendor ratings are all five if we've really accomplished anything. Well, I think, again, this should uh, spur, as Jeff is really pointing out, more dialogue. And we believe that this ought to start, as Jeff says, with the kickoff. There ought to be a common understanding of how the contractor's performance is going to be measured. And if you're doing it as much quantitative, some will be qualitative. But if you're really communicating, then it's like an employee performance assessment. There really shouldn't be that much surprises at the end. Um, 30 seconds left, Jim. What will you watch as this rolls out? Really watching the Biden administration. Do they really adopt CPARs, continue to do the good work that Jeff Kosas is leading to reform CPARs, to really make it a great tool, to possibly use it at the task order level more, use it to measure those new uh, socioeconomic goals that may enter in procurement, and make sure we can do things to lessen the burden, but make sure we continue the voice of the customer, but make sure that it, the contractors feel that it is balanced, fair, and accurate. Jim Williams, thanks very much as always. Appreciate it. Great to see you, Francis. You can find a link to Jeff Kostas's memo at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. And you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.